Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here today. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 4. So today, we will wrap up our series that we have been going through on worship, specifically covenant renewal worship, or as uh, Jesus referred to it in John chapter 4, verses uh, 21 through 26, worship in spirit and in truth. We began this series on worship from this text in John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. We looked at the history of the Jews and the Samaritans and the worship that has been conducted in that area by these people groups for thousands of years. We saw that Jacob and Abraham, his grandfather, both worshipped in this very place that Jesus and this woman are having this dialogue at the well, at Jacob's well. So we'll end our series on the same text today, looking at it from the perspective of worship in our own culture. John chapter 4, verses 21 through 26. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will teach us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. So, covenant renewal worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus does not just tell us that we must worship, but we must worship God in spirit and in truth. So let's go over these verses. Let me give you a brief summary of the text, and then let's talk about worship in the context of our culture today. In verse 21, Jesus tells the woman of a coming paradigm shift in worship that is about to occur. The woman asks a legitimate question. It's recorded for us in the previous verses. She asks about the proper place that worship should be conducted. She says, us Samaritans worship on the mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. Jesus answers her, saying, There's coming a time when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will worship be offered. 
Now, this was unthinkable for both Samaritans and Jews of Jesus' day. But that's exactly what Jesus says to her. Jesus was affirming there is a right place and a wrong place, a right way and a wrong way to worship the Father. Then in verse 22, Jesus graciously tells the woman, and I, and I qualify that with graciously on purpose. He graciously tells the woman that she does not know what she worships. In other words, Jesus tells the woman that her worship is wrong. He also indicates that she can make it right. Now think about this as we talk about worship in today's culture. Today, with our modern sensibilities, if a man was to say something like this to an oppressed woman, that's exactly what she was. She was a Samaritan woman. And they were oppressed and despised and ill-treated by the Jews. If, if, if a man was to say something like that today, it would not only be considered unloving, unkind, and certainly not Christ-like, it would be considered harassment. Imagine Jesus harassing oppressed people groups. Now, we know that he did not do that. But if we follow the line of logic in our own culture today, then we have no choice but to say that's exactly what Jesus did with this woman at the well. Yet we know it's exactly what he did not do. He extended grace to her and told her the truth so that she could be set free from the lie that she was living. It would seem there are many today who do not even know that Jesus said such rude and unkind things to people in his day. Many would-be Christians today would never entertain the thought that Jesus would actually tell someone that their sincere and heartfelt worship offered to their God was wrong. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And he did that because Jesus knows worship is important to God. In verse 23, Jesus informs the woman that not only is the hour coming, but now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He also assures her that the Father is seeking such to worship him. Now think about this. When Jesus uses the word true to qualify worshipers, we must understand the implication is that there are false worshipers. If there are true worshipers, there are false worshipers. There is no doubt that Jesus made this woman feel that the Father was seeking her worship. Jesus did not just tell the woman that her worship was wrong, but that the Father desired her to worship him rightly in spirit and in truth. In verse 24, Jesus informs the woman that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus, in saying this to the woman, is teaching the woman the truth about worship. Her worship and the proper worship the Father desires from those who worship him. 
Now, we talked about this in, in some of the first messages of this series. Remember, Jesus is referencing the way the Father presents himself to us and the way we must present ourselves to him. God is spirit. Is by the, it is by the spirit that the Father presents himself to us. God is spirit. How does God present himself to us? By the spirit. God is a spirit. He is spirit. How do we present ourselves to God? By the Spirit. We worship the Father in spirit and truth. It is by the Spirit that we are presented to the Father through the Son. When Jesus says that God is spirit, he is not telling us that God is a ghost. Or he has no physical body. Rather, he is showing us how we can worship the Father and be in relationship to him. It is by the Spirit. In verse 25, the woman tells Jesus of her faith in the coming Messiah. She does not know that she is speaking to him, but she also knows that Jesus is not the typical Jew or rabbi she is used to having encounters with. She knows that this man she has encountered at the well has told her things no other has ever told her. She also knows that this man knows things about her that no other could know apart from being, in her own words, a prophet of God. That's what she said to Jesus. I perceive, sir, that you are a prophet of God. Why? Because you just told me things that no one else could know unless God had revealed them. She declares that when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. In saying these words, she seems to be hopeful. And Jesus did not leave her without hope. He did not leave her hopeless, in other words. In verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. In other words, I am the Messiah you are looking for. Jesus is her hope. Jesus is the only hope we have in life and in death. The church holds this hope. We must give it to the world that is in desperate need of it. Well, how shall this hope be found? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. The Apostle Paul answers this best in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they have, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him? Of whom they have not heard. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Later on, few verses down from there, 
Paul pins these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. People must hear so that they may believe. That means you must go out and make him known through your words and through your deeds. Because to just make him known through your words and not your deeds is a recipe for disaster for you and for those hearing. In other words, your message needs to be consistent with your lifestyle. Each week, the Lord commissions us and sends us out to those who have not believed, who have not heard. Jesus proclaimed the gospel to this Samaritan woman. She heard and she believed that Jesus is the Messiah. The account goes on to reveal that the woman goes and brings her village out to see and to hear the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ the Lord. As they were coming, Jesus tells his disciples who have returned now. Remember, they went to go find lunch somewhere. And while they go find lunch, Jesus remains at the well knowing that he is going to have this divinely ordained appointment with this woman. And so now his disciples are back. The woman has left. She's bringing her village out to hear and to see the Messiah. And as they are coming, Jesus tells his disciples to look. And he proclaims that the fields are already white with harvest. Now, it's a word picture there. More than likely, what's happened is, uh, if you can imagine living in the Middle East, most people wore light-colored clothing because it's cooler. And so as this woman goes back to her village and brings the people back out to the well, to Jacob's well, where the Messiah is, as Jesus and his disciples look across the field down the road, they see all of these people clad in light-colored clothing, and thus Jesus says, look, the fields are already white with harvest. The harvest was not the grain. The harvest was the people. Today, as we look, we too will see that the fields are already white for harvest. We are not in these four walls to attract people inside. We assemble to worship God, to be renewed, to be equipped, to go out as laborers into the harvest. As God calls us in from the world to worship, he then sends us out back into the world to fulfill our commission and our mission to make him known to those who have not heard, to those who do not believe. Pray the Lord of the harvest send labors into the fields, for they are truly white for harvest. Jesus tells us of a coming paradigm shift in worship. This is what he's telling the woman here. Jesus said the hour is coming and now is. The paradigm shift in worship Jesus spoke of was not far off. Thus the language, the hour is and now is. The hour is coming and now is. In other words, it's here. It's time. And the paradigm shift that Jesus spoke of was standing right in front of that Samaritan woman because Jesus is the paradigm shift. 
But the pattern for worship does not change. So the place has changed, but the pattern and the purpose has not changed. Think about this. We talked about this in one of the messages. Worship has been decentralized, but it remains filled with divine purpose. The place his name now dwells forever is not a single geographic point in Israel. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in a temple that doesn't exist anymore. The place that God has chosen for his name to dwell forever has always ever been the temples of the Holy Spirit that fill the earth now. What does the Bible say about you and about me, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit? What does the Bible say about Jesus, the resurrected Christ? Tear this temple down in three days, and and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they said, you're crazy. It took 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days, John chapter 2? And then John goes on and gives us the commentary. They did not understand that Jesus spoke spiritually of his own body. Who is the third temple? Jesus is the third temple. You are the third temple that will never be destroyed by Assyrians, by Babylonians, by Romans, by anyone or anything. And you are the living stones being built up a holy house a habitation for God in the Spirit through which and in which you will offer up to Him spiritual sacrifices because you are a royal priesthood to make known His praise and His glory in the earth. So Jesus is the paradigm shift standing right before her. Now the temples of the Holy Spirit fill the earth, and Christ, by the Spirit, is dwelling in each of those temples. He's dwelling in you if you belong to Jesus. Whoever, wherever two or more are gathered in his name, this is what Jesus said, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Wherever we assemble in his name on the Lord's day, we assemble to worship the Father in spirit and truth, whether we are assembled in Jerusalem or on the corner of Mills and McLean Street in Taylor, Texas, the Father is seeking such to worship Him. While people knowingly or blindly seek to worship something of their own imagining, Jesus tells us the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Think about that. The Father is seeking worshipers. It's never a question of if we worship. The only question is who or what we worship. We have looked at our liturgy and the meaning of each part of the Lord's Day worship and the significance each part holds. All of the sacrifice and worship of the tabernacle and the temple only ever pointed the worshiper to the ultimate sacrifice who is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And our worship in spirit and in truth that the Father is seeking from those who worship Him. 
It always pointed to the restoration of all things. It didn't just point to the sacrifice of Christ. It pointed to the restoration of all things in a garden paradise in a new creation. This is why in the tabernacle and in the temple, there were things woven and carved and decorated all over it. Things like pomegranates and leaves and vines and cherubim. And it pictures for us the very creation itself. And there is an ascension that takes place from brass to silver to gold. It's an ascending up the mountain of God from those earthly elements to those divine elements where God is seated on his throne. The rejection of the creator has become so blatant and pervasive in our culture that even much of the Christian, much of the church seems to be blind to it. For those who have eyes to see and a spine to stand and a mouth to speak, let them see and let them stand and let them speak in opposition to the arrogant and rebellious idolatry that has infiltrated even the church. I just got an email yesterday that I deleted all about how the church can join the fight against climate change and how it's our responsibility as Christians to oppose climate change. Am I the only one? Do you sense the arrogance in that? Do you sense the rebellion and the unbelief in that? Now, if you believe everything we are and everything we have around us emanated from a giant explosion at some point in time, actually, they give us a date 13.8 billion years ago. Now, I wasn't thinking about this, but I did the math earlier, and I thought this was kind of comical. Our national debt is right now, today, 2,246 times larger than the age of the universe, according to the experts, the scientists who tell us what to believe and how to live and when to plug our appliances in and pretty soon our cars, I guess. Did you hear that? 2,246 times larger than the age of the universe. The universe is only 13.8 billion years old, according to the evolutionists. But the national debt is actually 31 trillion. And if things go the way our president wants them to go, by the time he leaves office, the calculation is that our national debt will be 51 trillion, which means it will be 3,395 times larger than the universe is old. Have you ever wondered why it's taken us 13.8 billion years to get to where we are on earth and in, and in the universe? But it's only taken us just literally a few years to get where we are with our national debt. Doesn't that seem like that math doesn't quite make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to me. 
But that is the kind of thing, and those are the kinds of experts that tell us if we're not careful, if we don't do what they tell us to do, we'll destroy ourselves. This earth that we didn't create, this earth that doesn't have a creator, just, it just happened by accident. Now you tell me what takes more faith to believe. That all of this and all of you are the result of a giant explosion that took place 2,246 years sooner by multiplication than it took us to get to the point of our national debt today? That, that just doesn't seem to add up to me. No, I think that's rebellious arrogance pushing against the Creator. It's the rejection of the Creator by His creation. It's not that the world, it's not the world that is to be transforming the church. It is the church that is to be transforming the world. This is why judgment begins in the house of God. There is always the ebb and flow, but remember, Christ has already won for us the victory, and the outcome is not in question. It's not. We may question and seek to answer what we are responsible for in our own time of visitation on this earth. And let me add, if, of all people living on this earth, we as Christians, as followers of Christ, should be the best stewards of this creation. Not because we fear we're going to destroy it, but because we fear the one who created it. And we're part of that creation and this creation has been given to us to fill and to take dominion over. Which means we should be the very best stewards of it. Because it is ours. We can question as we seek to discern what's happening in the church or what's happening in the world as we move toward that victorious end, which is also a beginning through the, through the earth, though the earth be removed, the psalmist says, though the earth be removed and the mountains carried into the sea, the outcome of our victory is never in question. Never. Don't be moved by fear, by what you see and what you hear. Fear God, don't fear man. Our worship of the Father in spirit and truth is transforming. We're transforming the earth, all right, not for destruction, but for glory. Our faithful worship in spirit and truth is to be a model for others. Our consistent witness in worship makes known the manifold wisdom of God and gives witness to not only things here on earth, but in the heavens. Listen to the words of the apostle. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You notice that word there in verse 11, eternal. The eternal purpose of God. 
There is no greater way to make known to principalities and powers the manifold wisdom of God and his eternal purpose than for the church of the Lord Jesus to assemble together to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The privilege has been given to the church, and it is a privilege with the power to transform not only the worshiper, but the world. In Galatians 4.26, the Jerusalem above is called the mother of us all. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 and verse 10, we see the new Jerusalem, the holy city, descending from heaven to earth. This city, New Jerusalem, is called the bride of the Lamb. The church is not only the bride of Christ, she is the city of God who is to transform the city of man and the entire world. The faithful worship of God by his people is powerful to transform the city of man and the whole world. This is the power of the gospel. This is the unstoppable nature of God's kingdom. As the church, do not doubt the power you possess to effect transformation. In something as unassuming by so many people as assembling together on the Lord's day to worship the Father in spirit, and in truth. You have been given the Spirit of God and the authority of the name of Jesus with the command to disciple the nations and to pray His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and it will be. His will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. It will. This world is being transformed by God's people as they worship the Father here in our own communities and all over this world. That is not true because we see massive and sudden transformation happening because very often we don't. It is true because we see Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death. For everyone, as long as you can see Jesus, you can know that all things are under his feet. As long as you can see Jesus, you don't have to see massive transformation taking place and all the bad news becoming good news because you already have the only good news. That is the gospel. And it is only the good news of the gospel that will actually transform lives and the world we live in. And it is absolutely doing that, and it has been doing that ever since God spoke his first word, let there be light. You realize that is the gospel. When there is only darkness and God speaks, let there be light, there is your first gospel message.
spoken in the creation. So we have the good news. And the good news will work. It always has and it always will. Your worship matters. It is powerful and it must become pervasive. There are lots of things pervasive in this world. Sin, darkness, death, destruction. You know what needs to become pervasive in this world? The worship of God by his people. I just had a conversation this week with a couple who told me all the reasons why they believe in God, but they don't believe in church. In fact, they're very opposed to church because all the harm that church has done to them personally and to people they know. You know what? I didn't disagree with them. There are a lot of people who call themselves the church who are in church, in churches like this, who meet every week like this, who in their sinful humanity perhaps have done more harm than good. But that is not a reason to abandon worship. That is not a reason to disobey God. In fact, it is even more reason to obey Him. It is even more reason and more motivation for us to come together to assemble to worship the Father. Because in that assembly, in that worship, there is power for transformation. We're doing this very series so that you will better understand why we come here and why we worship the way we do. Because everyone worships even if they don't know what they worship. Just like everyone is going to serve somebody, know it or not, everyone is going to worship something. Jesus was giving instruction concerning worship to the Samaritan woman. And in doing so, he gave instruction to us as well. The Samaritan woman belonged to a people typically despised by the Jews. When she divinely encountered Jesus, not only did Jesus not reject this lowly, sinful Samaritan woman who's had five husbands and the guy she's with right now, the guy she's shacked up with now is not her husband. Jesus didn't reject her. He gave to her the words of life and revealed himself to be her Messiah. She and all Israel awaited the Messiah. Jesus did not fit the paradigm, though. Most people had fashion for a Messiah. That's why they crucified him. He wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. Well, guess what? Neither does Jesus fit the paradigm of most people today. Jesus cannot fit into our paradigms he can only break them, and they should be broken, so that our paradigms are conformed to God's, so that our will is conformed to God's will, so that our ways are conformed to God's ways. 
This is the true Jesus many still refuse to believe in. Even if they profess, they do. Instead, here's what men have always done. They create a God, they create a Jesus out of their own imagining. A Jesus that never existed. A Jesus so nice, so inclusive, that he would never have been crucified. You do realize that, right? If Jesus is who the world says he is, because remember, they always say, you need to be more like the Jesus you profess to believe in. I'm like, I know you're right. They haven't killed me yet. I've got a lot of work to do. They don't hate me enough. Not because I'm being hateful, but because I'm that honest and I'm that loving toward people that I'm less worried about my reputation, my humanity, what people think about me, and I'm more concerned about what God thinks about people who are living a lie. And I happen to be the guy standing in front of them who can tell them the truth. The question is, do I love God enough? Do I fear God enough? Do I love this person enough standing in front of me to tell them the truth, even though I know they're not going to receive it and they're going to probably hate me for telling them? Well, if I'm going to be like Jesus, then that's exactly the person I'm going to be. And that's exactly what Jesus did with this woman at the well. We do not serve a Jesus so nice that he would never have been crucified. He was crucified because he loved people that much. So much so that he told them the hard truths that drove them to murder him. Yes, it was God's plan. Yes, it was God's purpose. But they still, with malicious hearts, filled with murderous anger, crucified the Lord of glory because they hated him that much. And they loved themselves more than they feared God. The Samaritan woman can easily represent all of us today in so many ways. Like this woman, many today worship what they do not know. That's what Jesus told her. You don't even know what you worship. Remember, he was gracious enough to tell her the truth, even if it would offend her. We see this happening all around us as there is no shortage of idolatry or false worship in our culture or in the church. Think of all the things people worship, both knowingly and unknowingly. Even many of the things people knowingly worship are things they may be content to know little or nothing about, as long as it doesn't challenge the paradigm they choose to embrace. Just leave me happy in my ignorance. What I don't know won't hurt me. Oh, I beg to differ. What you do not know can actually be deadly to you. It's like that song you hear from your past and you realize you never knew the lyric to that song actually said what it said. You ever done that? Whether it's the clarity that comes with technology or the Holy Spirit or both, you now have ears to hear what you could not or would not hear before. Worship can be much like that. We've all met people who profess to know the Lord and profess knowledge of his word when in fact they know little or nothing about him or his word. 
Again, the woman at the well represents many today, perhaps even ourselves. The thing many people actually worship may not be the thing they are actually worshiping. Reminds me of a prince's bride. That may not mean what you think it means. What you're actually worshiping may not actually be what you think you're worshiping. Case in point, the people Jesus speaks to in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, who came knocking to get in and tell him of all the wondrous things they did in his name. And in response to these, these people, these good workers, he says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lord, we did many miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We healed the sick in your name. We did all of these wonderful things in your name. We're ready for our pat on the back. We're ready for our reward, for our good work, our hard work. And Jesus says, depart from me. I don't even know you. Jesus rejected them because they were lawless. They followed their own pattern instead of the pattern and the law of God. They professed to know Jesus, but Jesus professed he did not know them. If that is scary to you, it should be. They were not ignorant. They were rebellious, just like all people. Ignorance is not man's problem. Rebellion is man's problem. What Paul says in Romans, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't suppress it in ignorance. Oh, poor people, they don't know. No, not poor people. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, not ignorance. These people Jesus is rejecting as having never known them are rebellious. Many in the church are just like these people who seek to justify their rebellion through their good works. It's what many are doing today. Many professing followers of Christ are using the name of Jesus to justify their sin and the sinful object of their worship. Many people worship things they do not know or things they pretend to know. It is the liturgy of our life that indicates what we actually know and what we actually worship. What is liturgy again? It's the form of our worship. What's the liturgy of our life? It's the form of our life. It's the practice of our life. It's our lifestyle. That's what actually proves what we truly know and truly worship and truly believe. Ignorance is not an excuse for our good works apart from, the, apart from faith in the true Jesus or our being nice and woke can never justify us or our sin. God tells us in his word that his people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, Hosea 4.6. And if you are his disciple, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what Jesus said in John 8. There is no reason for God's people to be destroyed for a lack of knowledge when the truth as it is in Jesus has been made known to them by the Spirit. If you belong to Jesus, you have the Spirit, and the Spirit has made known to you the truth. 
Now you must choose life or death, whether I'm going to obey the truth or find a way to weasel out of it. As we consider those all around us caught up in idolatry and false worship, we're to love them, pray for them, and work to bring them to the truth. We must certainly be careful to avoid the sin of looking down our nose at them, thanking God that we are not like them. We must be sure to remember that our own sin is no better than theirs. And that we are just as needful for a Savior as anyone we can see with our eyes. We are to know what we worship. The Samaritan woman did not know what she worshipped, Jesus told her. But we are to know what we worship. There is a reason we do not just come into this place on Sunday morning and do whatever we like without regard to the form or the pattern of worship God himself established for his people. To do that would deny God's people the covenant renewal provided each week when we obediently respond to his call to worship. As Jeffrey Myers says in his book, The Lord's Service, the purpose of our Lord's Day worship is covenant renewal. The liturgy of our Lord's Day worship follows the five-step pattern that we've examined over the last weeks. That pattern climaxes around the table of the Lord in communion with Him and with one another. And in that communion, we are renewed. So He calls us to worship Him. He receives our confession of sin. That's our sin offering. And He forgives us. We, he consecrates us. Instead of an animal, we are the ascension offering. We are the burnt offering offered up to the Lord. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. And then we are completely consumed by his holy fire. He communes with us around his table as we eat bread and drink wine with him in peaceful renewal. Finally, he commissions us and sends us back out into the world to fulfill the mission that he has graciously given to his church. Our worship follows this pattern because this is the pattern we see God establish in his tabernacle, where his presence did dwell. That pattern of worship was transferred to the newly built temple in Jerusalem as it became the dwelling place of his presence. That pattern was ultimately transferred to the true temple who is the Lord Jesus Christ and his body, who is us. Now, all who are in Christ are the temple of the Holy Spirit with the indwelling presence of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not only your glory, but the glory, the knowledge of the glory of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's our mission. That's what God commissions us to do every week is to go back out into the world, to work, to pray, to believe that the knowledge of his glory will cover the earth, will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. As his church, you are his body and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and your worship matters now and for eternity. Right worship renews us. We call worship that follows this five-step pattern covenant renewal worship. Not because, hear me church, not because our relationship with God expires and needs to be renewed. 
like a lease or an expiration date. Covenant renewal worship or covenant renewal in worship does not renew anything in that sense. It is called this because we ourselves need to be renewed. So how should we think of this? The renewal taking place in covenant renewal worship is our own renewal. Think of it more like how food renews our body. We're going to go next door after this service and we're going to celebrate Jonah's birth and we're going to have food. We're going to eat bread, eat soup, eat salad. We're going to eat and drink and we're going to nourish our bodies. We're going to renew our bodies. If you don't eat and drink every day, eventually you're going to realize your body needs renewal. And if you don't get that renewal, you will eventually die. Well, guess what? Spiritually, we have to do the same thing. And God has chosen that the way that we are spiritually renewed is to assemble together and to come to his table together and experience that renewal. The goal of our commission is that all nations would acknowledge the Lord as king and walk in his life. So our renewal, our transformation, our nourishment, and our strength is so that we can go out and carry out that commission. In our worship, we must regard the Lord as holy, and he must be glorified. So sometimes people say, well, why does it really matter what you do when you come together as long as you come together? Or why do you even have to come together? Because, you know, I can worship God out, you know, wherever I am, doing whatever I'm doing. Yeah, you can, and you should, but not at the exclusion of this. Because God, not man, God is the one who said this is the way it has to go down. This is the pattern. And when we break the pattern, there are consequences. Our nation is seeing those consequences right now. We're living those consequences right now. They don't happen immediately all at once, but they happen. And they'll happen to the point that you cannot deny the consequences of our sin and rebellion and refusal to follow God's word. But God gives us an even better example. We have reason to believe that our form of worship matters to the Lord. We have an example of this in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 where it is recorded that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, priests to God, they just got through offering sacrifices to the Lord, and they took it upon themselves to offer what the Bible calls strange or profane fire before the Lord. And when they did that, the scripture records that fire went out from the Lord and devoured Nadab and Abihu. <clears throat> In, in modern vernacular, God killed them. Oh my gosh, Pastor Jeff, no. No, God doesn't do that. You better read your Bible. You better understand the God you worship. Well, that's the God of the Old Testament. We worship the God of the New Testament. Oh, really? The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? The God Jesus taught about when he taught the Old Testament scriptures so that the New Testament scriptures could be written. You know, those scriptures we call the New Testament that didn't exist when Jesus was teaching the Bible or when Paul was teaching the Bible or when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were teaching the Bible. That God? Yeah, that's the God that killed 
Nadab and Abihu because they didn't worship him properly. Now listen to the words of Moses after the Lord devoured by fire the sons of Aaron. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron, the father of those two dead boys, held his peace, the Bible says. Now, I'm not saying we should be fearful that God's going to strike us dead if we don't do things just right in worship. I'm also not saying we don't deserve that. We just don't get what we deserve because God is graceful and he's good and he's merciful to us. We've done so much wrong, I don't think we need to fear that God's going to kill us for our mistakes or even our willful disobedience. Because if he hasn't yet, we have reason to have confidence toward God if we're trusting in Jesus, right? Because we don't get most things right most of the time. Having said that, It is imperative that we regard the Lord as holy and that we seek to glorify him not only in our worship but in the totality of our lives. I am saying that our worship matters to God so much so that he has given us a record of these things that should inform us and inspire us to worship the Lord according to the pattern he has shown us in Scripture. We should do this because we regard him as holy and because we seek his glory and because we love him. His grace is sufficient and his mercies new every morning. And for that, we are thankful. But we should not take for granted that our worship can be whatever and whenever and however we choose. Our God is holy. And he commands our worship. And he commands all things for his glory. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, let us prepare to, be, to come to the Lord's table. You do not have to be a member of Christ Fellowship Church to come to the Lord's table here. We confess in the creed each week we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, which is vastly different from the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the Roman Catholic Church, but in the Roman Catholic Church, you can't come to communion unless you're a member of that particular church. Here, if you are a member of the Lord's Church, the Holy Universal, the Holy Catholic, that's what that word means, universal. If you're a member of that universal church, past, present, and future, You're welcome to this table. Here is your commission, your charge. Please stand. God commands our worship. He calls us to worship, to assemble, and we are to obey his call. To say the opinions on worship and the reasons for attending worship are varied would be a vast understatement. That would include the opinions and the reasons for not attending worship as well. 
God does not care about our opinions or our reasons, most of which are excuses. I'm speaking of myself as well. The grace given to us in Jesus Christ does not suddenly negate the obedience that God commands in his people. All worship, all serve, and all obey someone or something, even if it is mostly self. You have been called to worship and to obey the Lord. You are called to worship the Father in spirit and truth. The covenant renewal worship you engage in today and each week does just that. It renews you. It not only renews us, but it, it transforms us and the world around us. Jesus made it clear in the verses of our text today that the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. The totality of Scripture pictures for us what this looks like. Jesus makes clear that worship is the will of the Father. Therefore, let us worship and obey, purpose to be such as those the Father is seeking to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let us worship faithfully and consistently, knowing that our worship of the Father is working in us and through us, ongoing renewal and transformation. That ongoing work of renewal and the ongoing work of transformation working in us is modeled in the commission Jesus gave his church. He commanded his disciples to be witnesses to him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He commands you to do the same, except that your Jerusalem, your Judea, and your Samaria represent who and where you are in your life. That transformation and renewal the Spirit is working in your own life moves out from you into your family, and from there into your community, and from there beyond to the world. The worship you engage in each week is bringing renewal and transformation. You may only see Jesus now, but keep looking to him. For one day you will see all things under his feet. The Lord is using your faithful, consistent worship. You are the city of God bringing about the transformation of the city of man and this world. Amen. Let us sing our thanks. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord be with you.